Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. All right, thank you, Julie. Good morning, everybody. Great to see you guys. Good to see you. Good to see you. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, thanks for leading us this morning, Seth, into worship as we have gathers today. Hope you guys are doing okay today. Um, uh, I've been talking about the suns a lot recently. I don't really want to talk about the suns a lot this morning. <laughs> Puts me in a bad mood, and I want to be in a good mood this morning because we have a lot of great things to talk about. I do just want to say one thing, though. It's not over till it's over, so I'll just leave it there. <laughs> I firmly believe that about this series, and we'll see if that's just a fan speaking or maybe that's the Holy Spirit. I don't know, but... Um, Speaking of the Holy Spirit, speaking of us, we are going to get into the book of Ephesians this morning as we wind down really our series that we've been going through this entire summer called Being the Church on the Book of Ephesians. Uh, we are in our next to last week, so we'll finish up the series next week as we look at the second half of Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to be in the first half of Ephesians chapter 6 this morning. And as we begin uh, this morning, I, uh, you know, Pastor Wes, of course, asked us a few weeks ago, what was the most important thing that you've gotten out of the book of Ephesians? I hope there was something that you could name. I hope there is something, maybe multiple things that you could name that you've gotten out of this study over the past several weeks, uh, because this book is, is, is rich with application, and it's rich with instruction about who we are as believers, about what it means to be the church, about all these core things that we often ask about what it means to live the Christian life about the centrality of the gospel and why it is that the gospel is truly such great news. What it is that God has done in Jesus Christ to change our lives, to change eternity, to change everything. I mean, there is so much in this book, and so I hope it's been an encouragement to you. I hope when Wes asked you that question that you were able to come right away with an answer, and maybe you were waiting for him to ask it again so you could give another answer, and maybe there were three or four answers that you wanted to give that Sunday morning. But because I think what's important is that as we go through these series, right, when we gather here on Sunday mornings and we talk about God's Word, more than anything, we want you to be changed by meeting with God through His Word. We believe that God's Word is living and active. We believe things like that God tells us that his, when His Word goes out, it will not return to Him void, but it will accomplish the purpose for which it's been sent. We believe those things as Christians. And one of the things that we believe in particular is that our faith impacts our everyday lives in a profound way, and that our faith impacts our lives today because it impacts our eternity. And one of the great things that the book of Ephesians does is it draws together the idea and the reality of our eternity and how our eternity impacts our present. I think it's important to remember for us because we might be tempted at times to separate the two. I think at times uh, we, we, we think about our faith as just what happens one day when we die, that when we die, one day we go to heaven because we've trusted in Jesus, and that is certainly true. That's a core aspect of the gospel. If we've trusted in Jesus as our Savior to save us from the penalty of our sin, if you have confessed your need for a Savior and realized that Jesus is the one and only Savior, that He has gone to the cross for your salvation, and that He has rose again so that you might have new creation, eternal life, that is true. The Bible tells us that. That is the core aspect of our faith. But what is also true is that just as much as Jesus has forgiven you so that you might have eternal life, a big theme again of the book of Ephesians is that Jesus' grace and forgiveness matters right now. For your life right now, in your everyday life, it impacts how we live even now in this life. We've talked a lot about this pattern that happens throughout Scripture of the indicative before the imperative. 
We've talked in other words about what this shows us is that what God has done and what God does is that he acts first on our behalf to draw us into relationship and then out of relationship, then he calls us to live, the imperative aspect of this, right? The command part of it. I'd like to give you a little bit of a turn of phrase on that this morning. We talk about uh, eternity and present. I think the way we could phrase this is that our etern- the eternal indicatives impact our present imperatives. In other words, the things that God has done about our eternity impact how we live and how God presently calls us to live even right now. Right? There's a simple little representation of that for you on the screen. Eternal indicatives impact our present imperatives. I think it's one of the great messages of the book of Ephesians. And this has been the rhythm throughout the book of Ephesians, telling us what God has done, telling us why it's so amazing, and that it's so amazing that it's changed everything about who we understand ourselves to be. And I want you to think about this for a minute as we talk about the impact that this has. I think one of the most significant implications of this understanding is that is the reality that God lives within us by his Spirit. And, and, and when I say this, I, I, I want to say this in a literal sense. I'm not talking about just spiritual hyperbole or, or, or just imagination or preacher speak on a Sunday morning. That this is actually true about us as new creations in Christ. That God the Spirit lives in us. Not metaphorically in some kind of ethereal way, but God the Spirit, the person of God the Spirit, lives in us as new creation Christians. That's one of the things that Ephesians wants to get across to us over and over again. That's a lot about what the New Testament is about. How do we live with this reality, knowing that the person of God by his Spirit lives within us? And I think when you think about it, I don't think it's too much to say that Where Christians are, new creation Christians, especially as we're gathered in community, is where heaven meets the earth. Is that there is a a true reality to where a piece of heaven in you as a Christ follower impacts the earth, dwells within the earth. You realize that? Because think about it this way. We are told that heaven is the place where God dwells. And God dwells within us as his spirit. God, God the spirit uh, dwells within us as believers. And so where that happens in this world, we're told even that we are represented as, as, these, as these temples of the Holy Spirit, walking around little temples of the Holy Spirit in this world, literally in our bodies on this earth, that that is where heaven meets the earth. That God has created this provision that that would happen, where heaven meets the earth is the Christian life, is the life of the church. So the very person and presence of God dwells on this earth through new creation Christians in the church. That just blows my mind when I think about it. And and if you think about it, this is how Paul, again, opens up the book of Ephesians. We've talked about that this this book breaks up into two parts. There's Ephesians 1 through 3, which are all the eternal indicatives of what God has done. And then there's Ephesians 4 through 6, which are the imperatives, then how we're to live as a result of all that God has done, which Paul's talked about in the first three chapters. But listen to the way that each one of those parts of this, this book are opened up and see the connection here between uh, the reality that heaven meets earth in the Christian life. Ephesians 1, verse 3. We've quoted this a lot because this is, I think, one of the big theses of, of Paul's uh, letter, if you will. He says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Look at the way he says this. This is a present tense reality of a future tense uh, connection. 
right? That there are the, the heavenly places, the place where God dwells, has been brought to earth in the present life of the believer. So that in Ephesians 4, when he begins to call us to live a certain way, when the imperative part starts, when the commands of what it means to live this life out in Christ starts, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, Paul then says this. It's kind of how he opens the second half of the book. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, what is that calling to which you have been called? It's fleshed out in the beginning of the book of Ephesians. That you've been called to be people who bring, in some sense, the presence of God to earth, where heaven invades the earth. That's a hugely broad statement, I realize that. But as we look at Ephesians 4, for example, you go through Ephesians 4, you see all these characteristics of Christ that are meant for us to live out. Humility, peace, loving kindness, patience. Then we get to a place where Paul even says to put off the old self and to put on Christ. He talks about what it means for us to serve one another within the church. I mean, all these things interconnected as the body of Christ, the very presence of Christ in this world. And then we get to this place where we got to last week, which was in the middle of Ephesians chapter 5. Paul starts to talk about how this should look in our personal relationships. And this is where actually it's going to, this is, what, this is the context of what we're going to be talking about today. Because we're going to continue in this discussion about personal relationships. And what Paul's addressing then is, what does it look like for us to live out this life in the closest relationships that we have? And he starts with the marriage relationship. Because the marriage relationship is, of course, designed to be the closest human relationship we have on this earth. And it's also designed to be hugely symbolic and significant of Jesus' love for the church and Jesus' connection to the church. We saw that last week, how Paul talks about we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And the husband loves his wife in the same way that Jesus loved the church so that he gave up his life for her. And as Paul gets down to the bottom, he says, to the end of the discussion, he talks about the fact that I'm talking about this huge mystery of the gospel in terms of how Jesus loves his church. That's what the marriage relationship is supposed to represent. The oneness and the mutual submission that happens within the marriage relationship. And so that as we open up to Ephesians, and, and we, end, we ended Ephesians chapter 5 last week with that discussion, so as we open up into Ephesians chapter 6 today, we're really in that context of Paul continuing to talk about these close personal relationships, right? What does it look like for us to walk in a way that is worthy of the calling of Christ in the closest relationships that we have in our lives? And I think the chapter division is a little bit unfortunate because it might lead us to think that Paul's uh, switching topics, but in reality, as we open up chapter 6, it, this part really goes much more with last week's than it does with the rest of chapter 6, um, but we're going to see how that's connected here. But in each case, what started with this discussion about marriage is going to continue to talk about relationships within the home, at least in the ancient world in first century Rome. And those relationships that are called out here are relationships between children and their parents and between slaves and masters. We'll get into it. Don't worry. We'll talk about, we'll talk about that part uh, here in a minute when we talk about the historical context. But with that in mind, before we get ahead of ourselves, let's talk about Ephesians chapter 6. Let's read Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. Paul says this in verse 1, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. That it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. 
Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is slave, whether he is a slave or free. Masters do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both master and is their master excuse me, he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Okay. So again, along with the marriage passage that we looked at last week, we have two more types of relationships that are being addressed here, and these are relationships that would typically take place in the home in first century Roman culture, which is where this letter was being written to, right? The, 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 the city of Ephesus in the Roman Empire. So this is often called the home code section of Ephesians because as we can see, there are some codes that are laid out for uh, relationships within the home. But I think more than that, one thing we want to realize is that this section is more than just about how we treat our spouses and how we treat our children and how we treat, you know, and, and how people in the first century would have treated their slaves. It has much more to do with this bigger picture of how it is that the gospel is being represented in our close relationships. So if you're not married, if you don't have kids, and if you're not a slave owner, which I think is all of us, then you, then it doesn't mean that this is not this is not relevant to you. This has a lot to say, but Paul uses these examples, these relationships, by way of example to communicate something that's a, a bigger truth. So this is obviously then one of those places where we need to understand context, in particular historical context. And I'm going to start with what's the elephant in the room, is basically what is it, this, this whole discussion about slaves? What exactly does that mean? What does that look like? And our goal for us is, 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 is kind of looking at these relationships, looking at the context, and then taking the essential timeless nature and being able to then apply it to our lives. So that's the goal that we're getting at as we interpret this. First, I think one thing we need to understand about historical context is when you're dealing with ancient Roman culture, you're dealing with a heavily male-dominated society. It was truly a man's world in, Ro in Roman culture in the first century if there ever was one. And actually, Rome relied on the home being a male-dominated environment as a building block for society. As I mentioned last week, in many cases, uh, women were actually viewed, or wives were viewed as property of their husbands, to such a degree that husbands and wives actually lived separate many times within the home. Wives would live on one side, and husbands would live on another side, and, and wives were only allowed to leave their rooms and leave their homes if they were uh, doing kind of like official family duties or at the, at the, at the, uh, at the pleasure of their husband, if their husband allowed them to do those kinds of things. So women's lives were uh, limited, especially socially. They had very few, home, or very few friends and relationships outside of the home. And husbands, on the other hand, were allowed to do whatever they wanted in their marriage. In fact, it was actually, uh, it was actually normative and in some cases encouraged for husbands uh, to take prostitutes, for example, outside the home. When it came to children then, Fathers had absolute control over their children, and their children really weren't kind of cherished as they are in modern cultures today. Children didn't have rights according to the law. While they were in their father's home, they were under their father's rule, whatever that may be. So as a result, fathers were often harsh with their children, especially towards the girls who were born into their home. To give you an idea, it was a father's right actually to determine whether or not their newborn baby had a right to live or not. If they wanted to kill their child, they could do that if they wanted to. And this happened in a lot of cases, especially with girls. Now, if they didn't want to put their child to death, 
and they still didn't want their child or they wanted the money, they could actually sell their child into slavery, and that often happened in Roman culture as well. So fathers would often sell their children into slavery. They also had unlimited power in punishing them physically, even putting them to death if they wanted to as a result of punishment or just because they didn't want to deal with them anymore without even facing any legal repercussions because, of course, children had no legal right in that culture. Now, one of the, and to give you an idea of this, one of the Roman books of wisdom, in one of those Gnostic books, a father was encouraged to whip and to beat his child as often as he could as a sign of his authority and his dominance over his children. And in that same book, a father was told not to pamper his son, not to play with his son, or not to share in his laughter. That was not good fathering according to the Romans. Now, as we look at this, I think one of the things that we realize is that um, the ways the Romans wanted fathers and masters to run their household was to limit the amount of influence or impact or what they would determine chaos that could bleed over into society. Roman society was a military uh, dictatorship, which meant that Caesar wielded all the power, and inside the homes, the husband or the man of the house was supposed to wield the same kind of power towards women, towards children, and towards slaves, so that they would be more controllable and so that they wouldn't impact or overthrow the disorder of or, or, or impact the disorder of society that would happen in Roman culture. For Roman Caesar, the thing that was most important was order and was that everybody, and that there was never any threat to Roman rule or Roman authority. And so the Romans encouraged their men to display that kind of authority in their homes. Now, when we read through this, of course, the mention of slaves is strange and maybe, maybe even offensive to our modern ears, but in ancient Rome, house slaves were common. The practice of slavery from household to household varied depending on how, uh, how I guess, uh, gracious your master was. In some households, slaves were treated very harshly. In other households, slaves were welcomed in as family and were treated almost as part of, of the family unit and were respected and loved that way. But in all cases, slaves lacked any rights whatsoever. In the ancient world, people could end up in slavery for a variety of reasons. We mentioned a couple of them earlier. In some cases, you might be born into slavery. In other cases, your parents might sell you into slavery early on in life. In some cases, people were in slavery just because they owed a debt. So they owed a debt that they couldn't pay back, and so they entered into a contract with somebody. That person became their master for a certain amount of years until they paid back their debt, and then they were freed at the end of the contract. For other people, they willingly entered into slavery as a way of bettering their life. For whatever reason, they were dirt poor, they didn't have any money or any resources, they had no support in their life, and so they would enter into a contract with a master who would support them and allow them to earn a little bit of money so that by the end of the contract, they would have some money and they could live out on their own once they were free. Slavery was such a widespread practice in first century Rome that it was estimated that about a third of the population were, were slaves at any given time. So when Paul's writing to this population, he's actually writing to a large percentage probably of people who are in the church at Ephesus. But as you gather all this together, one thing you realize is that if you were in first century Roman culture, unless you had the good fortune of being born a free male to a good home, chances are that it was gonna, life was going to be rough for you. And it was going to be very difficult. In fact, it is observed by some scholars that some of the reasons why Christians were persecuted is because they actually began to live differently than the way that Rome dictated the home be, be, be organized and be dealt with, right? And so when you read a passage like this and you see that husbands are told 
not to treat their wives as property, but to love their wives as equals and even lay down their lives sacrificially for their wives. This was not only a huge, shocking statement, but it was a threat to the order of Roman culture at the time. When parents are told to to, to not exasperate or provoke your children to anger, but instead to instruct them in the Lord and to raise them and to invest in them, this was a huge threat to Roman order at the time. And when masters are told to treat their slaves with respect, with fear and trembling, this was not only a shocking thing, but a huge threat again to the order of Rome. Because what are we going to do if all these women and children and slaves start realizing that they have equality before God? What's going to happen then? And in a lot of ways, the reasons why Christians, at least in some ways, the reasons why Christians were often persecuted and looked at suspiciously by the government is because they lived this way. And that's part of the design, as Paul presents this, that this is supposed to look like something that is different, not just for the sake of being different. It's not just as Christians, we zig because they zag. It's because this is made to look different because Jesus changes the way that we relate to one another. And notice that in every place that Paul Paul talks about here, he refers to Jesus as the one who gives instructions to each role within the culture, within the family. I mean, consider this stark contrast. This contrast is not only made uh, to represent the witness of the gospel within the family, but it's also made to represent the change that Jesus makes and the love of Christ to the outside community, to the world, and that we live differently because Jesus has made us into new creations, because a piece of heaven has come to the earth in the way that we live. And when you look at the stark contrast there, and when you see this, It would have made a huge difference and been even more pronounced in a culture like ancient Rome, where instead of it being like heaven on earth for wives, children, and slaves, it would have been more like hell on earth for wives, children, and slaves. This is why Paul, when Paul gives these imperative commands, he gives the commands as they appeal to Christ, because they're supposed to be for Christ and to represent Christ in the way that we live. Now again, this passage in Ephesians doesn't provide us with a ton of practical marriage advice or parenting advice or anything like that. It's not like we're given seven steps to a better marriage here, right? We're not given seven principles about parenting or or those kinds of things. There's a bigger picture in mind that Paul has here. He's not as much concerned with the earthly roles as he is with realizing that those roles are temporary and our future eternal reality is calling us from within whatever role we find ourselves in. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, which is another place where Paul addresses this issue of slavery. If we have it up on the screen, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Each one of you should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant or were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman in the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when he is called is a bondservant of Christ. In other words, if a slave can be free, they should seek to be free. But if they can't, they should remember and they should take encouragement from the fact that the Lord has freed them already. That the temporary place when they find themselves in is a place of chains, but in reality they have been freed by the Lord already. Let's say for a moment, I guess what this doesn't mean. This doesn't mean that as Christians... We should support slavery or practice slavery. I feel like I have to say that because passages like this have been used in history at times, either in the European church or the American church to defend that practice historically. 
And, but one thing we also have to realize is that the church has had a huge role in bringing the end to slavery in certain nations throughout our, country, or throughout our world as well. And so we should continue to fight slavery and oppression wherever we see it. The horrors of the sex slave industry that happens, that's operating right now, and where it's estimated that 27 million people are in some kind of slavery worldwide should keep us up at night. It should drive us to our knees in prayer. It should drive us to our feet in action. For those of us who have, for those who have power and privilege and a means to do something about it, we're called to love our neighbors sacrificially. And so where we can do that, where we can move resources, where we can move governments, where we can have an impact, we should do that and we should respond to it. But even in all that, it's important to remember that we live in an evil and a broken world where there will never be fully justice this side of Jesus coming back. There will always be poverty and oppression and injustice. And so these words from Scripture are meant to speak comfort really towards those who are suffering in these different roles. And they're made to change the way in which we see the world in our personal relationships. Look, we may not be able to change the injustices that are happening worldwide. We may not be able to change all of the things that we see wrong with this world around us. But we're told in our personal relationships that we can make a significant and important impact in the ways that we live our lives. And how God uses that and what God uses to bring fruit is up to him. But in the end, we've been called to live differently. And so when Paul talks to those who are in slavery, he tells them, live out your identity in Christ rather than the temporary situation you find yourself in. You're to represent that you live for something different and that heaven can come to earth even in the way that you respond to masters who might be abusive or harsh with you. You may not have a way out of your slavery, but you can live in a way that is humble and a way that loves the household sacrificially that you're serving. And in that way, represent the fact that you don't serve an earthly master, you serve a heavenly master who is Christ. And then he turns to masters, and, he, and this would have been really a shocking command for him to say, in the same way, masters, you're to respond uh, to your slaves. And what is that same way? With fear and trembling. I mean, think about this for a moment. Masters were called to respond to their slaves with fear and trembling. They had all the authority and all the power. They literally owned this human being who had no rights under the law. And yet Paul says, turn around and treat them with fear and trembling. As somebody who is created in the image of God, and as somebody whom you realize has a higher master than you as their earthly master. And in this case, of course, the master was also called to love his slave as sacrificially as his neighbor. They're to realize that in some cases it may mean that they might free that slave. They might call it into the contract, tear it up. But at least they would provide an environment where that slave could be uh, affirmed as a human being, loved in the image of God, and allowed to be blessed in the way that they served until they fulfilled their contract. Now, certainly as we apply this, I think, to, to a uh, principle for many of us, if we talk about this timeless principle, this probably is going to have more to do with how we respond maybe in the workplace. If you think about it, all of us, probably most of us, if we're working, have kind of both of these relationships. We have bosses, we have supervisors, maybe we also have employees or subordinates. And so depending on the context, depending on the relationship, we may function in both of these roles, but the command is still the same. To love your neighbor as yourself and to look out for how you can help that person to flourish and that you can be a blessing in their lives to display who Christ is in that relationship. 
that a piece of heaven has come to the earth by the way that you treat that person, whether they're a subordinate or whether they're your boss, whether they're a good boss or whether they're an overbearing boss, whether they're a lazy employee or whether they're one of the best employees that you have. We look out for their interests. And so it also has to do with things like character aspects. We're to be humble and kind and loving and full of integrity. We're to not steal or take advantage of people even when the opportunity provides itself and even when we probably won't get caught because it seems like a gray area. We're to not participate in activities that we know are sin but can often be excused as that's just the way we do things in business or in this place. Because doing that is not putting on Christ. Doing that is relying on the old self. Klein Snodgrass says this, The most important application of this text is the realization that we are slaves of Christ. The language should not be dampened. We belong to him and serve him. If we take seriously that he is the origin and the recipient of every act, all of our work takes on meaning and our treatment of people changes. Work will be done with care, not just to get by. People will be nurtured, not just used or ignored. And with this consciousness, we come close to mirroring the creative activity of God. This requires a fundamental change in handling life. So we're called to love and to nurture even those under, and especially those under our authority, which brings us to this place, this discussion of parents and children. Now, Paul starts with children in this discussion and calls children to obey their parents as a command that comes from the Lord. And it's a command that comes from, of course, Jesus, who was fully obedient to his heavenly Father. We talked about before, Jesus giving, the Lord giving commands to wives to submit to their husbands as the one who fully submitted to God's will. We talked about uh, last week, Jesus giving the command to the husband, directly from the husband, to be the one who lays down his life as the one who laid down his life for us. And now in this case, the Lord is addressing children to be obedient to their parents or to their fathers as Jesus was fully obedient to his heavenly Father. And then Paul quotes from the fifth commandment saying that this honoring your father and mother is one that comes with a promise and a blessing. That as children show their parents honor and respect, it's like obedience to, the heavenly, to our heavenly father as well. And from there, blessing comes from obedience, either because, our parents, either because we heed our parents' instruction and wisdom. And if we had good parents who were wise in the way that they brought us up, we can count the many ways in which we were blessed the times we listened to them. And the many ways in which we may have missed a blessing the times that we were disobedient. In all of this, of course, we know that parents are not perfect, right? None of us who are parents are perfect. Hopefully we're ready to admit that. I think a lot of us who look at our parents would probably say that our parents were not perfect in every way. Maybe it's appropriate at this point to also say that that doesn't mean that we are told, because we're told to obey, that we're told to obey Abusive parents or to submit to evil, whether that's in the home or around us, I think that's important to remember. We're talking about submission. We're not told to submit to evil or told to submit to abuse in those ways. But where it's appropriate, we are told to obey our authorities, realizing that the priority and the order of this flows from authority in God, that we obey God, and then out of that, appropriately obey the authority that he's placed in our lives. I think in most cases, parents, it, it, when, you, when you see the way that parents are called to engage in this with discipline and instruction, that there is fruit of blessing that comes from a child who wisely heeds their parents' instruction and discipline. Even when discipline and instruction isn't the easiest thing to face, and even when parents don't do those things perfectly, there is a way in which a child who recognizes the blessing of parent, parental authority and guidance in their lives 
honors their parents, honors God, and there's a blessing that comes with that that's promised. What that looks like is, is, is seen in a lot of different ways from relationship to relationship. But the promise of blessing is there. So then Paul turns the calling, after talking to children, the calling for fathers and parents. And here's a command here that is, is something that would drive all of this. It's a command to be active and involved in their, in their children's life. First of all, to be active in instructing and disciplining their children. And secondly, to be active in engaging, what I would, what I would interpret this and understand this to be, is engaging with them emotionally by upbuilding them rather than exasperating them or provoking them to anger. That phrase, provoking them to anger or exasperating, as it may be translated in your translation, means to literally kind of break down someone's spirit or soul. And you can imagine how that was common practice in the ancient culture that this was originally written in. In fact, that was the way that fathers were actually told to deal with their children. Break them down to a place where the, so that they can be easier to control in the long run. But Paul says, do not provoke your children. Instead, instruct your children, discipline your children for the purpose of nourishing them, building them up, and investing in their lives so that they are people who in the end have a higher well-being and in the end are brought up to be people who know the Lord and who see the Lord by the way that you treat them and the way that you love them as their father or as their parent. As I think about this personally, it also strikes me that as different as this might have been and as difficult, strange as this might have been for the fathers of that day to hear, Paul is actually encouraging the fathers to be blessed in doing this as well. I mean, think about it. Uh, by being an actual father. I mean, I, I love being a dad. I think for most of us who are parents, we love being parents. And, there would be a, and there's a huge blessing of being able to be invested in our kids' lives and see the way our kids grow and have the opportunity to instruct them and to discipline them and to invest in them emotionally. Instead of being cold, distant, the way that many fathers were in the first century. And I think what this tells us is that there is a blessing involved in parenting as well. And so parents together are called to exercise then headship over their children in the home. Now remember from last week, that phrase headship means responsibility for, not power or dominance over. Certainly parents have authority in the relationship, but they're called first and foremost to be people who have responsibility for their children's lives. They have a stewardship for their children. Children and parenting children is a stewardship. It's a, management, it's a stewardship that's given to us by God which tells us that we don't own our children, God owns our children, and he's given us these lives, the most precious stewardship that we can have outside of our salvation, to raise in a way that helps them to recognize who their creator is, that leads them to a place where they understand who their savior is. And in doing that, represents the character and the provision of Christ in their lives. So if God has given you a calling to be a parent, it's the most important ministry that you've been given, and you're called to do it. You're called as a steward of your children's lives to minister to your children as a parent. And we believe here at North, and I think this is a biblical belief, that you are the most important discipler, direct discipler in your child's life. In other words, you are the one who teaches your child more than anybody, more than the church, more than Krista Coe, more than Paige Coe, your children. You teach your children what it means to know the Lord and to follow Jesus. Now, we help, we have a role in that, but at the same time, our role is to come alongside you as the main discipler of your children in the home. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 7, this sets all the way back into the Old Testament. 
says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. The greatest commandment. And these words then that I command to you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. This is not addressing like the priest. It's not addressing the ministry professionals. It's addressing the parents, every parent. You are to teach them diligently to your children and to talk of them when you sit down in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. This was to remind kids, this part here, like notice it says that you're to, yes, you're to teach these things diligently to your children. You're to worship God within your home, to bring them into the presence of God. You're to also teach God's word to your children, but you're also to, to talk about them as you kind of sit around, as you're living life together with your kids, as you're processing life with them, engaging with them in conversation. As you're, when you walk, by the way, and when you lie down, when you rise. In other words, in everything that you do in your home, in front of your kids, you're to be instructing them and you're to be leading them and encouraging them and nourishing them towards the presence of God. That they should be able to look at you and see the love of Christ by the way that you parent them. And by the way, if you're married, by the way that you love one another in your marriage relationship. This is a calling for parents to live out discipleship life on life with their kids and it's the most important calling to discipleship that you could have in your life you know a few weeks ago or about a month ago we looked at that father's day video that our kids did right uh, one of the one of the pieces that struck me my kids were in that and 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 julie asked uh, some of the kids to emulate the way their fathers laughed right and my kids were in that and so it struck me, the first time I saw it was actually that Sunday morning. I was sitting there watching it right before I came up to preach. And I mentioned it at the time, but it really struck me, and I've thought even more and more about it since that day, is that kids are able to actually, were able to actually to really well, at least in my case, represent their parents' laugh to like the pitch and the volume and the rhythm of the way that their father laughs. I mean, think about how specific that is. Think about how much observation goes into actually observing that and being able to reproduce it. It hit me in that moment, and it's hit me, you know, repeatedly ever since then, that our kids are watching everything we do as parents. If they can see that, how much more are they seeing, are they noticing how you treat your spouse? How you treat mommy or daddy? How much more are they noticing maybe your outbursts of anger towards them? How much more are they, are they noticing how you talk about people in the home that you don't like or that don't agree with you? how you spend your money, and how you treat them as kids in general. How much more are they noticing all of these things that we don't always think about and realize? That's why Deuteronomy says, when you lie down, when you rise, everything, all of this is instruction that your children are picking up on. Are you showing them Jesus in that way? Look, this is not legalism. (laughs) It is faithful living. And that life-on-life instruction that they are getting is more than anything the thing that they are learning for. Look, it's great to have family worship times. You should be having those times. You should be having times where you sit down with your kids and you're reading Scripture together and you're talking about it and you're praying together. Those things should be a regular rhythm of your life as you lead your kids in discipleship. But probably more than anything, they won't remember those devotions. They're going to remember how you responded when they needed you. They're going to remember how you responded in a time of difficulty. Was it an outburst of anger? Did you respond with grace and mercy and trust in the Lord? They're going to remember more than anything how you treated mommy or daddy as they grew up. As Russell Moore has observed, I I said this in the very first 
message of this series. I talked about it as a reflection of the church. Russell Moore observed this in a response to a Gallup study that, of course, said that for the first time in American history, less than 50 people are, or 50% of the people are going to church in America. He talked about this in terms of the church. I want to spin it towards the family and parenting. We now see young evangelicals walking away from evangelicalism, not because they do not believe what the church teaches, but because they believe the church itself does not believe what the church teaches. If people reject the church because they reject Jesus and the gospel, we should be saddened but not surprised. But what happens when people reject the church because they think we reject Jesus and the gospel? And what if people don't leave the church because they disapprove of Jesus, but because they've read the Bible and they've come to a conclusion that the church itself would disapprove of Jesus? That's a crisis. Now look, let me say this. There are no guarantees when it comes to your kids. You can be a perfect parent. You can pray for your kids night and day, every single day, and your kids might not follow Jesus. It's their decision in the end, and you can't make that decision for them. If one of the twelve abandoned Jesus, (laughs) then... The reality is you can do everything right and they may choose not to follow your example. At the same time, you have the biggest influence in your child's life as a parent and God has given that to you by design. And your stewardship means that in that child's life, more than anything, even as teenagers, even even if they're a teenager and it seems like you are not making any impact and they're not hearing a word you say, you are making the most impact in their life of any other human being on this planet as their parent, for good or for bad. And so you can come here on Sunday morning and bring your kids to church every week and bring your kids to all the church stuff and say all the right things on Sunday morning. But really where the Christian life is lived out is in these home relationships. I think if we take one thing from all of these, whether it's your marriage, whether it's parenting, whether it's where you work, This is where you spend most of your time, this is where we spend most of our time during the week, in those relationships, in those closest relationships. They have the potential for the most impact for our mission and our ministry in the world to display Christ, and they also reveal more than anything our faithfulness or lack thereof in following Jesus. If you say, if you come to church on Sundays and you do all the right things, Nobody here is probably going to be able to tell much about whether or not what's really going on in your life. But the people who will see it from day to day are your kids, your spouse, people you work with. And if your life is not lived faithfully in following Jesus, they may come to the conclusion that either faith really doesn't matter or that it really doesn't have any power. And if, in that case, why should they consider it in the first place? So love your kids the way that your heavenly Father loves you. Embody all of those characteristics here. This is why Paul lays out these lists of what we're supposed to look like in the way that we walk. Be wise in the way that you walk because this matters. Humility, patience, kindness, grace, love, truth, faithfulness, giving instruction and discipline to our kids, being able to engage with them emotionally, and even as parents, maybe even being able to admit when you're wrong, displaying confession and repentance in front of your kids, trusting in the grace of Jesus to cover your sin. This matters. It's an urgent and necessary calling. I'll close with this. Ephesians 5, verses 15 and 16 says this. We saw this last week. Look carefully how you walk 
not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. I know no better application for that verse than what it is, what it looks like in parenting. Making the best use of the time. I have a 14-year-old who's about to turn 15 in a few months, and I can't believe she's older than eight years old. It's just unbelievable. And I think every parent who's gotten to that place, whether you're empty nesters or not, the time goes by so quickly. And I'll leave you with this image. I was given this jar. I mean, you maybe you've seen this before. I was given this jar by one of my friends at a previous church. And uh, these, are, these are not pistachios. Those look like pistachios. Somebody said those look like pistachios. <laughs> these are actually stones. They're rocks uh, that were put in a jar hand by hand and counted out. A friend of mine, when my, my youngest son Lincoln was three years old, I think at the time, uh, three or four, he, he counted up every single week that I would have with Lincoln until Lincoln left the home at age 18 and went off. And he put a rock in here for every one of those weeks. Now, I was supposed to take out a rock every week just to remind myself and, and to kind of track the time that I have left to impact my son in this way while he's at home. I haven't done that faithfully. I think just looking at it reminds me when I see this in my office, it reminds me of the fact that the days go by so quickly and that I'm to redeem the time and to be wise about how I walk. Because the impact that I have on my son as a parent, as a father, um, is eternal and it matters. And maybe you've seen this before, maybe you haven't, but it's a strong reminder to me. Whatever it is that reminds you of the urgency of this call, just know that in the end, again, we may see things that are happening all around us in the world. And for most of us, the reality is, we're not going to be able to fix the big things that are happening on this planet. They may frustrate us. They may grab our attention. But the thing that you are called to more than anything and the thing that all of us can do to make an impact in our lives that we're called to is in the personal relationships in our lives. And if you're married, it starts with your marriage. If you're a parent, it continues into your parenting. And where you're at at work in the marketplace, where, the, where, where your friends are, whatever that may be, whatever position you find yourself in life, we're to walk wisely because there's tremendous potential in the fact that God has invested his spirit in us so that heaven can invade the earth in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we stand amazed and astounded uh, that you would call us as frail and broken as we are Lord, as people with, with these earthly vessels that are falling apart every single day, at least once you get to a certain age, <laughs> it's a reminder of our immortality. But Lord, you have also told us that these temples are precious and important because they house the presence of your very Spirit in us. And so Lord, I pray that we would weigh the weight of that, of that glory as much as we can in the relationships that we have. You give us these instructions, Lord, not to, uh, not to give us ethical or moral imperatives for the sake of just being ethical, but to display the character of your Son to the world. I pray for the relationships that are represented in this room, the marriages, the families, relationships between children and parents, that may be strained. Relationships that we have maybe in the workplace, 
or with extended family. The Lord at times causes us to just shake our heads, pull our hair out, and not know where to go next. Lord, give us wisdom. Help us to live just in this way that you have told us to live wise. Lord, you don't give us commands without giving us the provision for how to live those things out. And you tell us to live wise, and so, Lord, I am praying for wisdom for us. You tell us to live in a way that uh, submits to one another out of reverence for Christ. So, Lord, help us to submit in love towards one another, to prefer one another, to love each other the way that you have called us to love our neighbor, that we would lay down our lives for their sake. Lord, in the end, that you would be lifted up, that you would be glorified, that you would be seen in every relationship. Lord, the bigger things in this life and in this world and and, and in in history are in your hands and in your control and you are sovereign to turn them as you will. We thank you for the ability to act in the places that we can, but we know that more than anything, the places that we are told to act are right in front of us every single day. Help us to treat them with urgency, the urgency and the wisdom that they deserve. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. As we close this morning, uh, the Zaratis are our prayer partners uh, for, for this service. So if, uh, if you uh, need prayer, uh, you can approach them after the service, and they're there to be able to pray with you for anything that's going on in your life or anything that you would need prayer for regarding a family member or whatever it may be. There are also other ways that you, we can be praying for you. If you would fill out one of the prayer cards as you leave this morning, located on that table uh, with the cross on top of it. If you grab one of those prayer cards, fill that out and drop it in the offering stand as you leave. We have a prayer team. Our staff team prays over those, th- over those requests, and then our elder team also prays over those requests. So they get triple covered every week, and we consider it a privilege to join with you in prayer. And so anything that's going on in your life that you would like us to be able to come with you, come alongside you, and support you in prayer, we would encourage you to do that. So hope you all have a great week. Look forward to seeing you again next Sunday. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.